0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to
1: the Universe,
0: your escape to reality. Hello
2: and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, November 6th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
0: Good evening, my friends.
1: Hello.
2: Hello. Everyone getting ready for our big trip. Yes. Yes. The
0: yes.
1: <laughs> I'm planning to pack as little as humanly possible.
2: I'm gonna pack about two hundred garments.
1: Two hundred garments? <laughs> Swag. Yeah, that's whack.
3: That's t t-shirts. Most will be yeah. t shirts. Oh,
1: right. yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you, Rebecca. I am gonna bring the least amount of clothes for the most days I've ever traveled, and like I'm not gonna bring more than I think three sets of
3: clothes. <laughs> oh it. come yeah. on, three no,
4: minimum.
1: we're gonna wash yeah. we have washing machines. Every other day? I'm just going to wear a swimsuit the entire time. Yeah, and
3: flip-flops. Jay, I'm going to have a different outfit every for every day with multiple costume changes. Awesome. <laughs> so.
1: I hope okay. Skeleton Pirate is <laughs>
3: among them. Wait, is there is there a costume party over there? <laughs> well, there is you now.
2: know. Bob, when, is now. when have you yeah. ever needed a costume party to become your Skeleton Pirate? <laughs> yeah. yeah. right.
3: Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. You went to that hey, award speaking
1: ceremony. Speaking of skeletons. Yes. Uh... <laughs> This is a very tenuous try here, but let's go for it. Um speaking of skeletons, guess who saved tons of lives back in the early 20th century? Skeletor Bones McCoy. McCoy. Skeletor Bones Bones
0: McCoy. Bones. (laughs) You did a time travel. All
1: wrong. You're all wrong. It was Sarah Josephine Baker. Happy birthday, Sarah Josephine Baker, born November 15th 1873. And she was amazing. She, uh, first of all, is very famous for being the person who tracked down Typhoid Mary. Uh, so that Twice, was a big apparently. deal. Twice, yeah, because you know that Twice Typhoid Mary. Mary. She's a slippery one. Uh, <laughs> she also <laughs> was uh, instrumental in uh, helping the survival rate for newborn babies. She basically set up schools where she taught mothers how to care for their kids, like really basic stuff, like how to dress them so they don't overheat and Feeding things them. like that, how to keep yeah. them clean. Uh She was huge in uh, improving hygiene around Hell's Kitchen, which at the time was one of the worst slums in New York. She saved many lives and also made lives better. Like at the time when she was getting started, There were something like 300 babies who went blind every year. And she came up with a really simple method for reducing that to three babies per year, which is incredible. Wow. She did that.
2: Yeah, that's, we still do that. Put silver nitrate in the eyes of babies.
1: Yeah, and more than that, she uh came up with a method for putting exactly the right dose of silver nitrate in their eyes using a disposable container so that uh, – because otherwise they were getting infected and using too much silver nitrate and things like that. So yeah, she she came up with that. Um She was also famous for talking to a New York Times journalist and mentioning that – it, it was safer to be, uh, in the war than a baby born in New York City. Oh my like, The God. mortality rate was worse for babies than it was for soldiers at the time, uh, which obviously was incredibly shocking and helped give her, uh, all of the attention and the funds that she needed to go on, uh, helping uh, improve the hygiene of, of newborns and, uh, and mothers in the area. She also came up with an early form of formula, which allowed new mothers to go back to work quickly, which was obviously a, a huge benefit to them. Um, and also I think my favorite thing about her was that through all of this work, she got really famous and New York University Medical School asked her to come and give a talk she said she would, so long as they let her enroll. And they said no. But then they looked around to find uh, another person with the same amount of knowledge, like maybe a man, and they couldn't find anybody who had anywhere near her amount of knowledge on uh, children's health. So they went back to her and said, okay, you can enroll. So in 1917, she graduated from there with a doctorate in public health. How badass is that? It's awesome. Wow. Pretty badass. That's an amazing woman.
2: Sarah Great Josephine story. Baker. Great.
1: Happy birthday.
2: Yeah, it's unfortunate that Typhoid Mary is like more famous than she is, right? Yeah, what the
1: heck? Yeah, exactly. It's funny. Yeah, she, the quote-unquote villain is yeah. more famous than the hero. All right, well, Bob,
2: uh your news item actually is somewhat related to this. It's about antibiotics or... An antibiotic that's not as an antibiotic.
3: Yeah, this one was actually um, very interesting and exciting. Uh, researchers have developed a new class of antibiotics so different, as Steve said, that it's not even really an antibiotic. It basically uses us uh, these cell-like liposomes to hide away the toxins from bacteria to alleviate an infection. And not only that, uh, one of the really cool things is that it'll probably have no contribution to increased bacterial resistance. You guys might know this is, this is one of my pet peeves and uh, I think it should be everyone's pet, pet peeve. So I'm kind of, I'm going to go off a bit on this. The overuse and misuse of antibiotics over the past couple of generations, it's really a travesty in the making. I I don't even want to think how future generations are going to view us on, on this and, and what we're doing. The Centers for Disease Control has stated that almost half of human an- antibiotic use is so unnecessary and inappropriate that it's the primary reason for bacteria's increasing antibiotic resistance. Um, and also that's, that doesn't even mention the, the use of antibiotics on animals, which is, a, which is a huge problem as well. So the, the one example that I go to that really gets my go is when people insist from their doctor, uh, that he or she prescribe antibiotics for a viral infection like a cold. And it's just like, what? This is a, this is a virus. Antibiotics not going to help. And the doctors, uh, oftentimes, they will try to explain that this won't work. But you know, a lot of times they just they just relent and say, "Here, just take it." Then you add to that things like people not finishing their course of medication, say because they feel better after a few days. So they're like, "Oh, I don't need to take the rest of those." Wrong. You need to finish it. So what we're inadvertently doing then is essentially accelerating the evolution of harmful bacteria. So and and even these the last. Ditch effort, powerful antibiotics that we use, you know, as a last resort. Even these guys are starting to fail one by one. So what we're doing now is we're just essentially spiraling down into this, into this pre antibiotic era in which many or most infections could be deadly. Could be, you can get, you can get a scratch and you could, you could die from it. Potentially, uh, or pneumonia, or, or 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 tons of surgeries. It's it's incredible. Some bacteria, in fact, are already in this era since there's nothing left that can defeat them. So there there are certain bacteria that there's basically nothing we could do. Just pretty much make the patient comfortable, and that's where we are. And it just and it's just going to get worse. And then, as bad as that is, even the, if you look at the future, you know, the potential future development, even that looks pretty damn bleak. Here's a, here's a quote from an American medical researcher, Dr. Henry Miller. He said, the number of drug and biotech companies developing new anti- antibacterials is shrinking. This decline is due to a number of factors, including lack of industry productivity, low return on investment of antibacterials compared with other therapeutics, difficulty in identifying new compounds with traditional discovery methods, regulatory requirements that require large and complex c- clinical trials for approval, and initiatives that encourage antibiotics to be used as sparingly as possible to minimize the spread of resistance. So even, so even the future does, is, you know, I'm usually pretty positive and optimistic about the future, but even that doesn't look very good. So yes, definitely not encouraging. But despite all of this, uh, there has been a really interesting advance on this front. Uh, researchers from the University of Bern announced recently that they've created this n- entirely new approach. To dealing with bacterial infections, and n- not only does it look really promising, but it also has none to minimal potential for increasing bacterial resistance, which is really the, the icing on the cake because even if if we came up with a new a new antibiotic that was completely conventional and, and very very effective it's eventually even that that would fall. So what we really need is something like this that's com- that's completely different. So what they did is they achieved this by engineering nanoparticles to form liposomes um, which resemble the membranes of cells. You may have heard of, of liposomes in the context of, uh, of them delivering medicine to patients' cells. So these liposomes, though, act as decoy cells. So they lure bac- bacteria to them and they attach to each other And the liposomes then absorb all the exotoxins uh, that the bacteria would have released um, onto healthy cells. So once these toxins are gone, it's much easier for your body to deal with and and get, you know, and and get rid of the, uh, the formerly very virulent bacteria. And then the toxins themselves are also safely eliminated without the risk to normal healthy cells because they're in these liposomes. And then the other key thing here is that more, moreover, since the bacteria are are not directly attacked, there's no selective pressure for them to evolve any resistance because you think about it. You know, you're just basically soaking up these toxins. You're not attacking the bacteria. So the bacteria don't even know really that anything is going on or anything is wrong. Uh, They just pretty much do what they normally would have done. Now, this looks very promising, but of course, we got to keep in mind, it's only been tested in mice so far and uh, the results have been very positive. Uh, basically the control mice died and the other ones didn't. I mean, it was really it looked really good. Uh, but of course, there's still a long road ahead of them, and they got to prove the efficacy for humans, and then they'll they'll roll it out. Uh, you know, to the general public. But a lot, lots of things can go wrong. Uh, you know, as promising as this looks, uh, who knows what what could happen, and who knows what uh. Uh, the bacteria can, could, can, can do to deal with this. I'm not sure what they could do, but uh, nothing would surprise me. Like I mentioned earlier, it's important to stress that this strategy is so different from other methods that they're, it's not even technically an antibiotic. So, so you can't even really call it an antibiotic. But this, no, it's
2: really, it's really an antitoxin.
3: Right. So, th- this is exactly the kind of out of the box strategies that we need to, to defeat these guys. And I hope, uh, I hope it's a, a tremendous success and they continue thinking outside the box to, to deal with this because things keep going the way they, they seem to be. It could get nasty pretty, pretty fast.
2: But we should point out that not all infection causing bacteria have exotoxins. Not all right, bacteria. Right. Yeah.
1: Hashtag. No.
2: Right. Uh, <laughs> but some of the really nasty ones do, like botulinum. Yeah. Uh, Clostridium. Botulinum specifically is the bacteria. Uh, diphtheria. Tetanus. Right, the Clostridium tetany. So yeah, so some of the some of the nastiest bacterial diseases are a product of exotoxins. Yeah, there's, I, there's, there's also endotoxins, which when the bacteria keeps the toxins inside of itself and releases it
3: only when it dies and lyses. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know this, but some of these exotoxins in their pure form are among the most nasty poisons known. They are like at the top of the list. They're well, for really, potency. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily mean that
2: what they do is the nastiest, but, you know, if you gram for gram, they, right. can, they can cause the most damage. Like, right. I think, uh, specifically botulinum toxin, which I inject into people, is the most potent toxin that we know of. The reason for that is that, um, how it works is it gets taken up into the, into the nerve terminal, and then it cleaves specific proteins that stop the, the nerve from functioning, but, each molecule, you know, of the botulinum toxin, the active part, does not get used up in the reaction. So it could just happily just go around, you know, one little molecule destroying all of the, the proteins, uh, in the nerve until it just goes through its normal lifespan and, and de- eventually just degrades because proteins don't last forever. But, um, yeah, it's very potent. A tiny amount could have a huge effect. All right. Thanks, Bob. Let's move on. Uh, another kind of biological item. Have you guys ever heard of the Primeval Code?
3: Yes, and it is of course ludicrous.
2: The, the notion here is that um, scientists discovered – The Primeval Code, by the way, was a 2007 book by a Swiss journalist, Luke Bergen. But he uh, talks about uh, alleged research done by researchers at Siba Geige, which is a pharmaceutical company, where they were using electrical fields – electrostatic fields on fish eggs. And that caused the fish eggs to develop more quickly. Uh, the resulting fish were more healthy and they grew faster and developed more quickly as well. Uh, they in fact got a patent for their technique. Although strangely, I don't think that that, I don't think that technique took off. Now, this was Ebner and Schurk, S-C-H-U-R-C-H. The Ebner-Schurk effect, I don't, think was ever replicated that I don't think it achieved scientific legitimacy, but the the primeval code goes much beyond just making fish eggs grow faster. That notion is that the, by using the electrostatic field on seeds, the seeds will revert their DNA will revert to a more evolutionary evolutionarily primitive state, turning them into super crops
0: oh my god. <laughs>
2: So, yeah. So, wheat, for example, will will mature in weeks instead of months, and corn will grow twelve ears per stalk. What? And and they'll they'll be resistant to pesticides, and uh and will won't need fertilizer. Like there are these magical crops, you know, that no roundup. Yeah, that are no pesticides, (laughs) no fertilizer, much more productive, much healthier, much better for you. Like every wet dream you could imagine about what you would want out of a crop, all by just subjecting <laughs> the seeds to this electrostatic field, which returns them to their evolutionarily natural
3: state before people started messing with them. You know, I don't, I don't think you can add a layer to this to make it more wrong. Every yeah. <laughs> conceivable layer is so wrong or not even wrong. It's just like, like the opposite. It's like, not, not even wrong. Not even oh, wrong. Oh my yeah. God.
0: You could throw a quantum or a nano in there and, uh, go in that direction. True.
3: So, so how could we buy this, Steve? <laughs> yeah. So,
2: but it is fun to talk about all the ways in which specifically it is wrong. Yes. So, first of all, you, you can't alter the expression of DNA with an electrostatic field. There actually, it actually has been studied. It does have some effects. Yeah. So it causes cells to differentiate More quickly, meaning, so if you have like a stem cell, it might cause it to more quickly differentiate into a specific kind of cell, but it reduces its proliferation. So they don't, they don't make as many. It's not really, it doesn't cause this accelerated growth that they were talking about. But what he's saying is in the primeval code is that it actually causes the genes to revert to a more primitive state. So that makes absolutely no sense from an evolutionary point of view for a couple of reasons. So multiple different kinds of changes occur to the DNA through evolution. For example, chromosomes can either duplicate or confuse and genes can be duplicated and genes will have point mutations or specific mutations within their codes so that the proteins change. But also there could be mutations in regulatory genes. So that the expression of genes can be turned on and turned off. So the one little kernel of truth here is that it is possible, right? Pun intended, for mutation to turn off a, a gene, as you know through evolution. Um, and then you you turn that that regulatory gene back on, right? You you reverse the mutation so that the gene is turned back on. Then you'll turn back on the production of that protein that was turned off through evolution. The problem is that when you have a dormant gene, you know, a gene that is a, a relic of evolution, there's no selective pressure to keep mutations from accumulating in that protein. So you end up with a really mutated version of the, of the protein. Like, for example, uh, you may have heard about experiments to have hens grow teeth, right? Yeah. Birds, birds don't have teeth, but they evolved from dinosaurs who did have teeth. From non-avian dinosaurs, and some some of them, like chickens, still have still have the genes for teeth. They're just not expressed. But if you if you could put mouse mesenchyma onto uh, the jaw of a developing fetal chicken, the signals from the mammal will turn will cause the chicken teeth genes to turn on.
1: That's both terrifying and hilarious. Yeah, the so the idea could,
2: of a chicken with teeth. <sighs> But the teeth are, are really malformed, you know, because.
1: That's even funnier, actually. They, <laughs> <laughs> I feel so, bad so for the chicken, but. British chicken? The, oh. The image in my head is thick the damp. <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> they've been mutating. <laughs> say it. They've been mutating for a hundred million years, you know. So anyway, so that you, there's no way to reverse the course of evolution. It, that information is not in the DNA. It, a lot of it is lost. A lot of it has just changed. Yeah, well, it's where just, is it then? It's just not there anymore. It, the information's
0: lost. Information is never lost. No, you're right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All
0: right. Except in a black hole.
2: So that's strike number Maybe. two. <laughs> and then the other thing is this is such an absurd expression of you know, the naturalistic fallacy, of the notion that anything that is natural has got to be better and, and any intervention – by man is artificial and therefore bad this is like taking it to a really ridiculous extreme the, and essentially what they're saying is that the last thousands of years of cultivation of selective breeding and hybrids and selecting plants made cr- our crops worse they, that they would,
0: completely backfired yeah they, and they, they kept
2: must doing have, it they must have systematically been selecting for the worst varieties of everything.
4: What? So are they saying that like the corn that was found by man so many years ago is actually better than the corn we have today? Essentially. Yes. Well, it wasn't corn when they found it. No.
2: I mean, that's actually the worst example to pick. Corn (laughs) Yeah. yeah, evolved, was cultivated from teosinte, which is a barely edible, this sort of tiny thing with a few hard kernels. And you could actually see the see the cultivation of corn over three thousand years, to you know with larger ears, more kernels, you know, et cetera, more juicy, softer. The same thing is true pretty much of anything that we eat. You know, we've we've taken them from barely edible things to you know the plump and juicy fruits and vegetables that we all take for granted today. It just makes no sense. There's, there's, why would cultivation have made things worse? And it's hard to even yeah. make any any kind of sense out of that at all.
4: Yeah, like they kept trying to make it better and it kept getting worse every generation. Well, that's not actually cultivation. That's another word. That's yeah.
3: de-cultivation. And you know, right. at, at least they should have picked a crop where we have no record of its ever of its history through cultivation, right? right? At least go, at least use that as an example, not corn, which I think is probably the worst example <laughs> they could use. So this
2: thing is still bouncing around. It's it's uh the, this whole idea the the primeval code. I think the reason that such stories persist is just because it's the narrative, right? The narrative is nature is good, corporations are evil. You know that they, they say that you know Ciba when they made this discovery, they patented the discovery and then suppressed it and squashed all research and kept anybody else from doing research on it because they want to sell their pesticides.
3: Yeah, Steve, I think one of your your commenters uh, to your blog made the point that if you wanted to to hide a, a discovery, the last thing you'd want to do would be it would be to patent it, right? Well, when you patent it, you make the information
2: public, but in exchange for protection, intellectual, yes. you know, pr- protection. Uh, but the other thing is, their patent actually expired.
3: Yeah, lack of payment in '99. Yeah, think. they
2: just yeah, So it's out there. So if this if this effect were real, it's open source. Anybody can do whatever they want with it. Why aren't they? Hmm. There's no way that 20 years ago somebody could have made a, a discovery that no one has replicated, no one has duplicated. Especially now the patent protection is gone. It would have been built on on basic science that was out there that everyone would know. But that doesn't drive the narrative. The narrative of the evil corporation requires that discoveries can be hidden from the world. And it it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't pass the smell test.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, of course, that makes me think of the quote "the he's standing on the shoulders of giants. And, you know, the, this guy's standing on in midair. He's got
0: nothing under, underneath.
2: Yeah. There. All right. Well, Evan, you're going to tell us about an interesting discovery made by Curiosity.
0: Mm hmm. That's right. The Curiosity rover has yielded the mission's first confirmation of a mineral mapped from orbit which is very cool. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, the MRO, in 2010 detected hematite inside Gale Crater on Mars. And that's where mission scientists of the Curiosity rover decided eventually to land the rover. One of the main reasons why the mission is actually studying the geology there is because of this detection. So what we have now is a confirmation of that because... The rover has drilled into the rocks in that area, scooped up the samples, and the measurements are precise with what the orbiter detected. And Curiosity Project scientist John Gretzinger of the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena was quoted as saying that this connects us with the mineral identifications from orbit Which can now help guide our investigations as we climb the slope and test hypotheses derived from the orbital mapping. So the orbiter has proven itself quite, uh, quite reliable, quite trustworthy when it comes to these. Not that it was really in doubt. Um, but nothing beats verifying your measurements from orbit with confirmation on the ground, basically. You know, they went, they, they, they made it. They confirmed it. And now as the mission presses on, the scientists can hit the spots that they deem to be the most valuable. They'll send the rover op- uh, up the slopes of the crater to analyze more, more soil and rock samples that uh, they uh, get from measurements from the MRO.
2: Oh, it's interesting about the, the hematite that they discovered. So hematite is basically uh, oxidized iron. What it shows is that in the in the ancient Mars that there probably was water. This this could be consistent with. Uh, with there being water on the surface of Mars they actually have samples that show different levels of oxygenation of oxidizing i should say and mm-hmm. that could indicate that there was some kind of a gradient which again could be consistent with there being there being water on the surface of Mars so that's that's why they're so interested in hematite because that you know that could give them uh, confirmation that that's the case chemical you know mineralogical confirmation
0: Sure. And it's probably, it's another step or a piece of the puzzle as to eventually, uh, getting confirmation that the mic, that there were microbes once on Mars, yeah. may still be microbes on Mars. It's interesting because one of the articles actually said that this latest discovery underlies the need for surface operations on Mars. And they said if, uh, it, it's, it's gives us yet another reason to even put, uh, people on Mars to, to verify that. And I, I thought about that a little bit. And I was wondering, do, do you think we have the technology now that if we were to be able to, I know getting to Mars is a huge deal, but do we, do you think we have the technology now that when the people arrive on Mars, they'll be able to get out their, you know, machines, tools and stuff and be able to verify these things relatively quickly?
4: Yeah, I guess it depends on what tools they can bring with them. If they have all the equipment with them, they should be able to do it fairly quickly.
0: And Jay, it's interesting you mentioned that, um, about, you know, bringing stuff in the technology. I, I had a uh, brief, uh, email exchange with one of the scientists who's working is part of this project. There's dozens of scientists, but one of them and I had an email exchange earlier. And he, he brought up the point that, you know, if this with the, with the hematite that's there, if we can uh, find ways to make use of that, to turn it into usable iron or steel or something, we can actually build things while we're there on Mars and sort of have an, an iron age on Mars. And to think about it that way is kind of a really, really cool thought.
2: Yeah, if there's a lot of it there. It could be an easily accessible source of iron.
0: Yeah, I think doing doing a lot of um, you know pre-gaming at
3: Mars before you get there is a, is a, is a key way to go, especially in terms of things like uh, you know creating your own fuel to get back to Earth. Imagine you go there and you've already got you know a, you know a rocket's worth of uh, fuel for you to take off and head back to Earth. That would be incredibly advantageous. Yeah. And water and oxygen and send as, the robots
0: first.
2: Yeah. The robots, if they could, they could do 3D additive printing, you know, with yeah. using, I like, turn the hematite into some kind of, uh, of a metal that uh, iron that they could 3D print with. They could make dwellings that have a thick enough shielding, you know, to protect from sure. Yeah. Co- you know, the cosmic rays, et cetera. So yeah, you wouldn't want to send people there unless there already was. A reasonable infrastructure that the robots built for us. That would mm-hmm. be the way to do it. All right. Uh, Jay, you're going to tell us about Harp closing, which has got some conspiracy theorists in a tizzy. I understand they're in a tizzy. Yeah.
1: Where are all of our earthquakes going to come from? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what Harp is, right? This is
4: going to be a huge <laughs> disappointment to all the conspiracy theorists out there. Uh-huh. They must be like, so on some level, I guarantee you that some of them are disappointed. That they won't have it to blame, uh, you know, or spin their ideas from. So the U.S. Air Force notified Congress that it plans to shut down HARP, and even though I I know what HARP is, I didn't know all the details until I I did some research on it. So what is HARP?
1: I literally only know it from conspiracy theorists blaming it for earthquakes. Uh, HARP
4: is very interesting. So it stands for High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. And it was funded in nineteen ninety and construction started in nineteen ninety three. It was jointly funded program. it was a jointly funded program including the US Air Force, the US Navy, uh the University of Alaska, because it's in Alaska, and the Deve- Defense Against the Dark Arts. I mean Defense <laughs> <laughs> Advanced Research Project Agency. That's DARPA. DARPA. <laughs> yeah. Not to be so, with DERPA, which is a very different thing. DERPA <laughs> So, what does the U.S. <laughs> government claim the facility in Gakona, Alaska, is used for? What's the cover-up? The cover-up is, it's for developing ionospheric enhancement technology for radio communications and surveillance. And that does sound a little sketchy, right? I mean, Sounds yeah, ominous. What, what the hell does that mean? Conspiracy theorists like just eat up titles like that or explanations like that, and this is where their crazy stories come from. But it actually. Uh, the work that's done at Harp seems pretty mundane when you when you take a closer look. The sun shoots a lot of energy at the earth, and sometimes when a flare happens or any kind of um you know sun eruption happens, the sun can hamper radio communications. We know about that. We you know there's been some dramatic historical events that have taken place where the sun, uh, a large solar flare did some massive damage to things on the planet. And, you know, with with all of our communication, everything from the internet to all the wiring that we have to all the, the CPUs and our computers and all of our electronics, you know, sun flare is a very, very dangerous prospect.
3: And coronal mass ejections. Definitely.
4: So the goal of the program is to collect data that will allow scientists to further understand the physics of the ionosphere, which is in constant flux. Due to the sun's, you know, moment-to-moment influence over it. Fluxing. Yes. The ionosphere is 85 kilometers or 53 miles to 600 kilometers or 370 miles up. And scientists were simply testing the ionosphere to see if there were any ways to overcome or minimize the sun's effects on communication and navigation systems. Tons of crazy explanations, guys, are out there, but... Most famous one, I think the one you hear the most from, from Harp is the weather control thing. But there's a lot out there and a few I didn't hear of. So how about mind control? Did you guys hear about that one? Oh boy. Why not?
0: I think so. Yeah.
4: It was also, uh, said to be able to disable satellites that it can cause storms, right? We all, we definitely heard of it causing storms or creating weather patterns and things like that. Earthquakes like the 2011 earthquake. Uh slash tsunami in Japan. Uh that that w- that came from uh, Harp. The more Oklahoma tornado of two thousand thirteen. You know, creating a tornado. Imagine you know if you could actually create a tornado, the amount of energy that you would need to do that would be phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and why but, would you pick Oklahoma? Why would you make it in a place where tornadoes happen all the time?
4: Testing, testing. You wouldn't think it's weird that it shows up there. They're testing the the strength
0: of the machine, of course. Oh, I see. It gives it natural cover. You could get it confused
1: though with a real tornado. You know, you need to make it happen somewhere where there's very little chance, so you can be like, "Okay, this test was definitely Uh that tornado was definitely us." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's probably that tornado that was in Manhattan or was it Brooklyn a while back? That was probably.
4: There's also floods and droughts, so it can do you know both of those things. It uh, global warming, guys. It's the cause of global warming. I thought everyone didn't believe in global warming. Uh, they yeah. even said it can cause diseases. Gulf War Syndrome and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome was said to come from the facility. It's
1: weird. I um, would think that the Gulf War would have caused Gulf War Syndrome. But <laughs> nope. It's okay. Nope. But don't don't forget, guys.
4: Did. It also um, did horrible things like caused the mm-hmm. TWA Flight 800 and it also caused the 2003 Destruction of the Space Shuttle Columbia. Did it
0: assassinate uh, the president in 1963? It must have.
4: It, it did. As soon as you said it, yes, it did. See that? Uh, but the best one, I think, I, out of all the stuff that I read, was
0: that it can alter the very fabric
4: of reality.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I That's knew great. it. Because okay. If you're going to be that far unhinged, you might as well unhinge all the way. Yeah. So,
4: what? you know... Th- the mystery, the mystery that was shrouded in this facility was non-existent. So here's a very interesting thing. Did you know that Harp first? It cost more than $290 million to build it and that it created the first artificially produced Aurora in 2005. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, but hmm. ironically, the Harp facility and what was done there was very, uh, it was a very open book to the world. Like they let everybody know what was going on. All the activity at Harp was logged and made available to the public. They had yearly open houses where anyone, any citizen of any country could go and get a full tour of the entire facility, no restrictions, and the research done there was frequently published in journals. And also they even had summer school for visiting students. When I when I read all of that, it completely took away any mystery that was left in the back of my mind about what they were actually doing there. I mean, there was no mystery there is no conspiracy theory. It was simply studying the ionosphere. Done. That's what they want you to think. <laughs>
2: Basically, Harp is going dark, is what you're saying. Mm. <laughs> you're just going, going underground.
3: Of, of course. It's so easy to, to uh, for them to deal with this. They're, they're just going to keep up the same old crap.
2: Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses.
1: Yeah, we talk about The Great Courses a lot, and that's because – They're amazing. They've been doing college level courses on a variety of subjects for 24 years, allowing people to learn at their own pace, subjects like science and math and history and art and music, pretty much anything you want to know, you can find out through the great courses.
3: So this time, guys, I listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson's Inexplicable Cosmology chapter, and as usual, it was very fascinating. He talked about fusing quantum mechanics and general relativity into unified theory and other things like EMC equals MC squared, virtual particles, and the universe's horizon. So so I really recommend the whole course. For a limited time, The Great Courses is
4: offering... For our listeners, a chance to stream Neil deGrasse Tyson's course, The Inexplicable Universe. It's typically a $95 value. You could stream it for free. (laughs) You could stream it from any internet connection, TV, PC, or through The Great Courses mobile apps. This free offer has been extended through the end of the month, guys. So hurry.
0: Great. That's excellent. And to stream The Inexplicable Universe from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics.
2: Yep, but you got to go before the end of November. It really is worthwhile. It's a great course. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about some recent votes about labeling and banning GMO.
1: Yeah, if you've been paying attention here in the United States recently, we had uh, the midterm elections and there were a number of ballot initiatives that uh, dealt with GMOs. So. Here's what happened with a few of them. There, there were a couple that were GMO labeling initiatives. These are, these have come up twice before in two different states and they got shot down both times. And, uh, spoiler alert, they got shot down each time this year as well. The idea is, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. It's the idea that any raw product that had been genetically engineered in any way would have to require or would have to have genetically engineered uh, plastered on its packaging. Um, any packaged food that had any product in it with genetic engineering would have to say produced with genetic engineering or partially produced with genetic engineering on its package. Uh, so that's the idea. In uh, Oregon, that was one. Um, the... Initiative was narrowly defeated by fewer than 51% of voters. But, uh, notable is that it's the costliest ballot measure on record. The, uh, pro supporters raised more than $8 million. And that's really noteworthy because the, uh, anti Of all the, you know, the opponents of all of these um, initiatives, it's always like Monsanto and DuPont and these large companies. So generally they are already spending millions and millions of dollars. And so the uh, people pushing the initiatives are pretty much always pushing uphill. But in this case, they did an amazing job raising a crap load of money. They still lost, uh, but it was really close. So the supporters claim that it's a consumer protection law. It educates shoppers about what they're choosing. Uh, opponents uh, argue that the initiative puts undue stress on farmers and food pro- producers uh, to, and I quote, separate, repackage, and relabel their products and ingredients, which can come at the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars, which then increases the total amount of money that shoppers would have to pay for groceries. Although there was a study done, uh, in Oregon by, uh, Eco Northwest, which found that labeling would cost a medium of, median of $2.30 per person per year. But then there are also, uh, the problem of the fact that this would create two new state oversight agencies as well as an inspection program to enforce the measure. And all of that would end up costing taxpayers more than $14 million every budget cycle. I also want to
2: point out, Rebecca, that that study you cited with the median cost of $2.30 per person per year was done by the Consumers Union, which is anti-GMO. It's also an outlier. The main criticism of that study is that they only considered the direct costs of labeling itself. They didn't take into consideration any of the reformulation or other responses of the food industry in order to deal with mandatory labeling. The Washington State Academy of Sciences published a report that estimated the annual costs of labeling at 150 to 920 million, depending on exactly How the uh, food industry responds. And a Cornell University study estimated that mandatory labeling would cost about $224 a year for a four person family or $1.1 billion annually just for New Yorkers, which is what, what the study focused on. So the issue of cost, you know, is actually fairly complicated and, but most estimates range a lot higher than that consumers union study.
1: The other thing that opponents brought up is that there are exemptions for things like dairy and meat products, restaurant meals, ready-to-eat meals, cafeteria meals, and other things like that. So the initiative would be unfair to some food producers, and so some foods wouldn't even be labeled as genetically engineered, even if they are. And conversely, foods like sugar – could be labeled as genetically engineered even if they're not, since the sugar could come from genetically engineered beets but not actually end up containing any genetically engineered content in the end. So uh, the uh, opponents uh, won that one, like I said, pretty narrowly though. So you can expect this to continue in future. Uh, also in Colorado, there was a labeling law that was also defeated. Um, a hundred million dollars in total has been spent by supporters of GMO labeling, uh, which is just an insane amount of money. But again, it's a drop in the bucket compared to companies like Monsanto and Dow and DuPont. And obviously, like, it's working. That amount of money that GMO label supporters are spending is, seems to ha- be having an impact at the polls because, um, they are definitely gaining support and these things are only being defeated narrowly.
2: Well, well in Colorado it wasn't narrow. It was like 66 to
1: 34%. Oh, right. Yeah. The Oregon one, though, was incredibly. Yeah, narrow. that
2: was that was on that was a razor. Yeah.
1: So the other uh GMO initiative I wanted to mention happened in Hawaii, but just for Maui. But it's a pretty big one. And in this case, uh the anti-GMO crowd won. Maui temporarily banned GMO farming by a very narrow margin of 50 to 48%. The ban is in place until the city can evaluate the potential harm caused by GMOs and pesticides. Uh, it's the most expensive campaign in Hawaii's history with uh, opponents spending $8 million or nearly $300 for every no vote. Although, again, we are talking about Monsanto, Dow, DuPont. It's a drop in the bucket for them. Uh but it was apparently money wasted because they lost, so in Maui, Monsanto is actually responsible for uh about thirty one hundred acres and more than five hundred employees uh that's on Maui and Malokai, I should say, and the year round farming because of the the weather in Hawaii makes it an ideal place for them to be and so supporters of this initiative to ban g m o farming said that. Uh, these companies are using Maui as a test area without consideration of the possibility of creating super weeds and super bugs and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the opponents, uh, claim that they have the scientific evidence to guarantee the safety of their tests. And, uh, other opponents include actual Monsanto employees who were quite worried about losing their jobs. So who knows? But it's a pretty drastic thing. It's, it's one of the most drastic. Uh, initiatives to pass of late. But we'll have to see where it goes because, again, this stuff never seems to end. But for now, uh, Maui has temporarily banned GMO farming. That is the update, the post-election update.
2: Yeah. We could also mention that Vermont, I, I don't remember if you said this, Vermont actually passed a law. This is not a voted on as initiative. They They passed a law requiring labeling, which is going into effect in 2016.
1: Yeah, that... That was done back in July, I think. Yeah.
2: And that yeah. is, uh, and that's being opposed in court.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's all tied up. So who knows if it's actually going to work out. And yeah, that's what I mean about this stuff, just never ending. Like, <laughs> I mean, Monsanto is obviously not going to go down easy on this. Uh, so, you know, well, it's
2: not just Monsanto. I mean, pretty much farmers are against labeling initiatives.
1: Farmers generally, like, you need a lot of money to protest this stuff and to tie it up in the courts and to, you know, get your commercials on the air and things like that. And so that stuff is primarily coming from these companies. And so that's what I mean. Like, this is not going to be an easy job for anti-GMO, the anti-GMO crowd.
2: Yeah, Yeah, the anti-labeling coalition essentially is the biotech firms, like you mentioned, farmers groups. And also, food producing companies like Pepsi, Land O'Lakes, Smuckers were mentioned. And then the uh, the pro labeling is organic farmers, the organic you know lobby, and more grassroots. You know,
1: yeah. In in Maui, there were like the main board was like included spiritual advisors and things like that. So there's like a definite culture clash that's happening. I think you
2: could kind of understand in Hawaii because they don't have their history. Prepares them to be distrustful of big agricultural companies. The
1: anti-GMO uh, groups in Hawaii uh, seem to be uh, pushing their side using like a like a pro Native Hawaiian sort of spirit, and you know, yeah, like I, I think with with their history, it's it's certainly understandable.
2: Yeah, I mean, I make no secret of the fact that I'm anti-labeling because I don't think that it uh, is science-based. You know, yeah. It's one thing to say if companies want to voluntarily label their food as GMO-free, go right ahead. If that's a selling point, fine. Mandating it though, then that's the government saying this is information that is valuable to consumers. But they've already determined that the produce is safe. They've essentially already determined through the FDA, the EPA, etc., that there is no difference to the consumer, and so what is the point of labeling? Of course, we know what the point. Is. The point of labeling is to demonize genetically modified produce. It is part of the campaign to completely ban it, because you know labeling it is the first step. You know, in in fear mongering about it. But it's really clever. I have to say, it's really clever. It's hard because it enables the pro labeling. Um, proponents to say, well, all we're asking for is information. You know, we want transparency. Are you, what are you trying to hide? You know, it's a really easy position to defend. And I, it's a lot harder to explain. Well, by mandating labeling, you're implying that the information is important. You're implying that it's something that consumers need to be wary of or need to be scared of. And you can actually cause misinformation by providing too much information, which sounds counterintuitive. It's a hard argument to make. So it's kind of a brilliant campaign. It's kind of a win-win, you know? If they, if it's labeled, then that's, they're on their way to further the campaign of demonizing GMO. If it doesn't, then what are you trying to hide? All we're asking for is transparency. They kind of could sell it either way, but hopefully, I'm just have to hope that in the end, that the science will prevail. All right, well, we have a couple of uh, quick interviews that we're going to do this week, and then we'll go on to science or fiction. So let's go on with those now. Well, we're joined now by Sheldon Helms. Sheldon, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide.
5: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
2: Hey, Sheldon. And we're joined by Sheldon because he is helping host the SGU at Ohlone College. Sheldon is an associate professor of psychology there and also a member of the Bay Area Skeptics. And the, uh, the psychology club and the Bay Area Area Skeptics, I guess, are co-hosting our event at Ohlone, which you tell me rhymes with baloney.
5: That's right. That's how we remember it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So does, (laughs) does anyone ever say that you have a degree from (laughs) baloney?
5: Probably not to me. I don't have one from there, okay. but they probably say that. Sheldon, if you're working
4: late at night and you're in the building, do you feel all aloney?
5: Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> it starts already. It's, it's, it's this is not <laughs> an example
4: of the entertainment
5: that we'll be delivering when we give
2: her <laughs> event at Ohlone College, just so you know. Huh.
5: <laughs> Ticket sales are going down now. are <laughs> yeah, re- Refunding their tickets. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure working with all of you on the planning. I can't wait for the audience to see the finished product. This is going to be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, so let's give the details. This is the start of our tour. We're, we're making a uh, three-country, multi-city tour, and it all begins in Fremont, California, at Ohlone College.
5: Yeah, billing it as the SGU Geo Skeptical Extravaganza and Quiz Show. It wouldn't all fit on the tickets, but... That's what's going on the signs.
4: You missed the best part at the end. It's supposed to say extravaganza of some significance. No, of special significance. Of special significance. Thank you. Oh,
5: God. We're going to have to give three tickets to each person to get <laughs> yeah, them all yeah, in yeah, there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 90, I've been telling people it's a 90-minute romp through science and skepticism with the, the rogues from the SGU and George Harab Perfect. as the musical MC.
2: That that's, that about covers it. Yeah, that's yeah I think so.
5: Hosting and support is going to be George Harab. I'm so happy about that. George is basically he was born to be a game show host, right? <laughs> <that>. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> he's the Alex Trebek.
4: He is. I mean, he's you know not only is George good at everything that he does, but he's so good at hosting anything. He just he gets it. You know, he can keep it going. And we, we, as we are developing this program George was like so critical to the whole process so thank you George
3: guys remember we were filming the passing passing away and uh, he played George played an undead game show host and he was fantastic in that role as well (laughs) yeah
5: (laughs) well I know he's been busy collecting trivia questions from his listeners to stump you guys in the quiz show portion
3: yeah that's a fun
2: bit the way that's going to work very quickly is the SGU is going to be pitted against the entire audience so we'll see if, in Ohlone, we'll see if the four of us can defeat whether a couple hundred people have signed up already. Uh,
5: yeah, the, the theater holds over 400. So that's going to be a really interesting interactive part of the show. Yeah, that audience I mean, is going down. <laughs>
3: so where can they
4: go to get the tickets?
5: Well, uh, you can go to the Ohlone College website. Um, just go to ohlone.edu. That's O-H-L-O-N-E. And in the search field, just type in psychology speakers. It'll take you right there. Or, of course you know, in your show notes and all that stuff as well.
2: So Sheldon, tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Bay area skeptics.
5: Yeah, I have the luxury of working with Eugenie Scott, who is our director and uh boy, we couldn't ask for a better leader. We, I think it's the longest running uh, skeptical organization in California and one of the longest running in the country. When was uh, it founded? God, back in the early eighties, I think. Oh, wow. So it's been consistently yeah. running for a really long time now. And uh, Jeannie's really great. I mean, she knows everybody and everyone adores her. So when she asks people to come speak for us, usually we use local talent and we meet twice a week. Once is just to get drunk with each other. And then the other one is to actually have um, scheduled speakers. And we've been really lucky. We've had a lot of great speakers. Even Rebecca came and spoke for us a couple of years ago, did a little mm-hmm. quiz show of her own.
2: Yeah, a couple of years ago, we, uh, we were out there.
5: Yeah, you're at Aloni. Yes. Yeah. It's just great working with you guys, and I uh, can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks. Sheldon, thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Okay, see ya. Well, we are joined
2: now by Susie Wiles. Susie, welcome to the Skeptics Guide.
6: Thank you very much.
2: So Susie, you uh, are from New Zealand. You're part of the New Zealand Skeptics, and we're going to chat with you for a few minutes about the conference that we're going to be at there in a few weeks.
6: We're so excited to have you. <laughs> We even moved the day of the conference.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That
1: That is excitement. We appreciate it. Yeah, I
2: remember talking to you. I was like, well, we're going to be in your part of the world then, you know, beginning of December. So that'd be a really good time for you to have your conference.
6: (laughs) We were like, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And these
1: guys don't even know the pure joy of New Zealand. I can't wait because they didn't make it the last time. They screwed off to home while i went to new zealand no we went to can whatever (laughs) well
6: we loved having you rebecca and we're pleased you're all coming and pleased you're coming back rebecca
2: so what kind of crazy shit is happening in new zealand
6: (laughs) you mean just do you want to talk conference crazy shit or crazy shit um woo crazy shit Yes. (laughs)
1: Woo, (laughs) crazy shit. Start with whichever one you want to go with first.
6: Let's let's start with the bad and then we can end with the good.
1: All right. Sounds good. Good thinking.
6: Today started um, the, uh, what do we call it, the induction of a new lot of bishops for Archbishop Jim Humble's Miracle Mineral Solution Church you know, the Genesis 2 church of, what is it, healing and health or something. So he is here in New Zealand and today um, started a three-day workshop so that, to teach people how to, you know, give bleach to their friends and family to cure all their ills. Um, and it's been really interesting. So the story broke in the media a couple of days ago and uh, they have interviewed, I think he, he his right-hand man maybe was interviewed on um, New Zealand radio, but the overall the the coverage has been really negative for them and they haven't really been given much of a voice. It's been absolutely fantastic. So I got to go on breakfast TV this morning and talk about it and there was no, you know, and now we're going to talk to the bleach drinkers. Um, and so I'm kind of proud of New Zealand media at the moment. It's It's been great. That was the same with the homeopathy story last week. There was very little uh, actual, you know, at the time airtime given to the homeopaths to make their case. So, um, yeah, so we're kind of sad. It seems that there's about 40 or 50 people are are, um, paying their $500 a pop to learn how to be bishops in this church. Although there was something in the New Zealand Herald today that somebody got turned away because they only wanted to make a $30 donation. Um, And they said, no, you need to give us your $500 donation,
1: which makes
6: it suggest it's not really a donation then, or they don't really understand the the meaning right. of the word donation involuntary <laughs> donation
1: that actually reminds me of the story uh randy used to tell about going to the dumpsters uh after a faith healing to do and he would find all of these checks for like ten dollars and twenty dollars just thrown in the trash because uh, there's just not enough money for them to even bother cashing
4: yeah sad unbelievable
1: wow
6: yeah, so so that's really probably the only really stupid thing that's happening. But it's you know it's a kind of fascinating thing, right? That that you can't they can't sell their bleach on the internet, so they come up with a church to sell it. It's kind of kind of clever, really.
2: Yeah, they just invented a church in order to sell their snake oil. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like Scientology.
6: <laughs> Absolutely, allegedly.
0: <laughs>
1: don't sue us.
6: In my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of hoping uh, to get mention of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster on TV this morning, but I forgot. So uh, never oh. mind. Never mind. It was, it was my hope, given it was live. But yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> that's about it. That's really happening. The it was kind of good news with last week's homeopathy story that um, our now the portfolio of the alternative health has been given to um, the real health person, who's a very much an evidence-based policy guy. So. That's Excellent. kinda good. Unfortunately they're they're not the part the party in power. But um yeah, it's 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 not been it's not been a good couple of weeks for Woo, I'd say in New Zealand. It feels like they're getting a real good bashing.
2: Good. Have you had an opportunity with all the press to, to plug the conference?
6: Oh, I've not. Um I haven't really been doing that. That's been a bit naughty, hasn't it? I've got a couple of um I do a like a, a fortnightly science slot on our national radio, so I was gonna do that next week.
2: Ooh, I love doing things fortnightly.
6: It <laughs> it's great actually. <laughs> one week on, one week off. Um yeah, but the, the registrations are good. We're kinda of pleased. I mean New Zealand's a tiny place, but you know, we're having it in our biggest city and uh it, it'll be smaller than most of the other conferences you've been to. But we like to think that we're going you know, small and intimate.
2: Intimate, yes, that's the term. Mm. <laughs> yeah, what do you got lined up for us?
6: Well, so obviously we've got all of you lot, which is gonna be fa- um fantastic. But um we've got also a great a heap of uh, of locals. So um, we've got Ben Albert, who's a pediatrician, and he's been doing a fantastic PhD uh, project on supplements and sort of how, whether they're dangerous or not, certain supplements taking during pregnancy. Um, so he's going to be reporting on his stuff, which is kind of hot off the press, and uh, I think you'll like it. It's very, very exciting. Um, we've got our very own Vaccine Mythbuster. Um, Helen Harris, who uh, works for the um, Immunisation Advisory Centre here. So she's going to be talking about vaccine, all our vaccine cracks that we have uh, here in New Zealand. We've got Stephen Galbraith, who uh, I should notice as my husband, who's um, a mathematician, and he is going to talk about mathematical cranks. Because I think when he moved to New Zealand, he sort of thought that maybe he wouldn't get quite so many people emailing him, telling him that they'd, you know, solved various mathematical things. But actually, he's had heaps. So he thinks that New Zealand might be a little hotbed of mathematical cranks, so he's going to talk about that. Um, and then one of the things I'm really excited about, so we have uh, a wonderful... Um, scientist and engineer here called Michelle Dickinson, and she's basically turning into New Zealand's answer to the Mythbusters, mm-hmm. so she is just a fantastic ball of energy who likes destroying things and blowing things up and stuff, um, and so she's going to come and talk to us. Uh, her, her superhero name is Nano Girl, because she's basically a nano- Nano nanoscientist, um, awesome. and so she's going to come and do some things, but what's going to be really exciting is that on the Friday evening, we're going to, so after you guys have done your quiz, we're going to do some science stuff, so we'll have some chemistry demos, um, Michelle's going to have a whole load of nanotechnology demos, and then, um, because I am there, there'll be lots of things that glow in the dark as well, so we'll Yay. do... Um,
2: I understand it. You like bugs that glow. Uh,
6: bacteria, yeah. So I make bacteria that glow in the dark, and so um, I, I make nasty bacteria glow in the dark. So yeah. things like TV and various other things. So I won't be bringing those along. I'll be bringing some ones that aren't so deadly, um, or in fact aren't deadly at all. And then we'll be, yeah, we'll be various opportunities for people to play with glowing bacteria too, or have their photograph taken using the light of glowing bacteria. Um, So it should be fun. So we'll have basically hands-on sciencey things, plus you guys. So that will be sort of the kickoff on the Friday, and then the Saturday will be, you know, talks by various people. Um, So, no, it should be fun. One of the other things that will be very cool and I'm really looking forward to uh, is a guy called Toby Ricketts who's a filmmaker, and he is at the moment trying to uh, make a film about tax and religion. And it's inspired by the fact that in New Zealand we have a company called Sanitarium who are our big uh, maker of breakfast cereals, Um, but they're owned by the Seventh-day Adventists, and so they don't pay Uh any tax, Uh, and so he's sort of writing a, um, he's doing a film about them, and so it'll be really interesting to hear how he's getting on with that. I have managed to indoctrinate my daughter um, into not we, you know, we go, when we're in the supermarket, she points them out the sanitarium rice bubbles and things. And she's like, they don't pay any taxes. They're really evil, aren't they, mummy? So um, she's a, <laughs> she's good at that. In <laughs> fact, she even told her grandparents when she was staying with them once that they bought the wrong cereal. She didn't like their cereal <laughs> because it was this company. So yeah, so this should be fun.
2: Still anybody out there that wants to get tickets for the New Zealand Skeptical Conference? Where do they need to go,
4: Susie?
6: They need to go to conference.skeptics.org.nz. And
4: yeah, then, sign up. Yes. Auckland
1: 5th to the 7th of December.
4: That was .nz for those of us that don't say Zed.
1: Well, that's that's the test. If you can figure out where to go online, you can get in. If you yeah. can't even figure out NZ, then you don't belong at the New Zealand <laughs> Skeptics. I
4: guess you're right. Well, what if David <laughs> Young wanted to go? He, he lives in China. He doesn't know about Zed.
1: He might know about these Zed. He lives in Hong Kong. That's like a very British.
4: All right, Susie, thanks for joining us. And we look forward to
2: seeing you in person in a few weeks.
6: Yeah, very, very soon. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me.
2: Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about a new sponsor that we have this week, Sansair, which is a, believe it or not, a cooking device for sous vide cooking. Jay, I know you've been – Jay and I both have one and we've been using it and it's actually quite interesting.
4: I tried it. I actually have one now and it's very interesting. But to put it simply, the device controls the temperature that you're cooking at. You put, you put the meat that you're cooking in a plastic bag and it's suspended in water. And what happens is that the device actually cooks the meat at a lower temperature and it cooks it perfectly evenly. So as an example, when you cook a steak, that's the steak is actually being cooked more on the outside and less as you go deeper into the steak. With this device, it actually cooks everything at the perfect cooking temperature, so the entire piece of meat, whether it's fish, chicken, or steak, is cooked at, at a specific exact temperature. And I, I have to admit, I was had no idea how things were going to turn out, and it was fantastic.
2: Yeah, it's really easy. I mean, the thing I like about it is you basically just throw everything in a bag, you set the temperature you want, and you just forget about it for an hour or whatever. You can't really overcook things this way. I made some steak recently with it, and then I just seared it very quickly after I, it was cooked perfectly evenly all the way through. And then I just seared the outside, which I think made it taste a little bit better. And it was great. It was really easy.
3: Well, the, the two things that were really impressive for me is that you can cook, you can cook your food completely unattended. Just walk away, watch a show, and you don't have to worry about it. And the other thing is that, um, you can't overcook. If you invited people over and they're like one hour late or even three hours late, it doesn't matter. It'll, you'll still be okay with it. It's still fine.
0: The Sansair is used in some of the world's best restaurants and restaurants have been using similar devices like this for years, but they traditionally cost around a thousand dollars. Fortunately, Sansair makes it reasonably priced. And for our lucky listeners, the Sansaire costs only $179. It's regularly $199, but for SGU listeners, it's $179. All you need to do is go to www.sancerre.com and use our promo code skeptics at checkout. That's ecom
2: All right, thanks, guys. Well, let's get back to our show.
0: It's time for Science or Fiction.
2: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have three regular news items this week. No theme. Hooray.
1: Hooray.
2: Okay, here they are. Item number one. Astronomers have found evidence that half of all stars in the universe exist outside of galaxies. Item number two, a new study finds that methods currently used at airports to detect deceptive passengers works only 3% of the time, but a new method being tested was effective 66% of the time. And item number three, the tiger beetle moves so fast it cannot see its prey, so instead, Biologists recently found it relies on thin hair-like projections that are 20 times the length of its body. Rebecca, go first.
1: Ugh. Alright. I have not heard of any of these. Half of all stars in the universe exist outside of galaxies. That's a lot of stars. That's a lot of indie stars out there making their own go of it. I have no, I have no idea. I have no grasp of whether or not to Say, I mean, it sounds like a huge number. I would not be surprised to find that airports are currently super crappy at detecting deceptive passengers. 3% of the time. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. And a new method being tested is effective 66% of the time. Yeah, that sure. I almost suspect that of being a fake just because it so obvi- obviously plays into, uh, what I think <laughs> of the TSA. Uh, which is that it's a worthless organization that shouldn't exist. And we'd all be safer if we just threw our bags on the plane and left. The tiger beetle can't see its prey. So it uses hair like projections 20 times the length of its body. I've never seen a tiger beetle before. So why not? Yeah, 20 times the length of its body. I mean, that's pretty big, but maybe it's Quite small, so it doesn't look quite that ridiculous. Cats use their whiskers to tell, you know, things that it can't see, like whether it can fit through little holes and things. So why can't a tiger beetle? So I, I, I'm I completely at sea on all of these. So I'm going to go with the one that seems the most obviously true, uh, with the hope that Steve is just trying to pull one over on us. I'm going to say that the fiction is the airports detecting deceptive passengers only three percent of the time?
3: Okay, Bob, let's
1: see. half of all
3: stars, not in galaxies that's that's a, just a huge number. It just seems too big, although I, I know that uh, you could have lots of stars that are ejected um, during uh, galactic mergers and and if sometimes if the mergers happen in, in such a way that I mean it could be complete disruption, so there'd be a lot of stars. Out there, but still, that seems like a big number. Detect de- deceptive passengers. I mean, how do they, how, I, mean, I don't know how they're doing this detection. I wish based on their behavior, based on what they say, the 3% doesn't, su- doesn't surprise me. 65 is that or 66? Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. That's quite, uh, that's quite a leap. That's, a, you know, I could, sure, I could see that happening. I don't have too much of a problem with that one. Now the ti- the tiger beetle. I do know that that guy is pretty speedy, but, um, I don't know. It seems to me that releasing a, um, these, uh, hair-like projections 20 times the length of the body. To me, that would seem a little bit counterproductive. Uh, that, I mean, especially if you're moving fast, it could get caught on something. What if the predator is steps on it and the, the beetle just kind of just gets jerked backwards? I don't know. That just something, uh, out of whack with that. That doesn't sound like, sound like a good method to me. Uh, I'll say that one's fiction. Okay, Evan.
0: Uh, half the stars in the universe existing outside of galaxies. Um, I suppose there is a mathematical formula for this. You take the age of the universe, you have a computer draw up uh, all the formations of the galaxies and all the collisions and uh, gravitational events that would fling these stars out into uh, non-galaxy areas. <laughs> so, <laughs> out uh the deep cold intergalactic, intergalactic, space. intergalactic space so is it's uh, 13.7 billion years enough time for half of all the stars to have done that and a lot of stars have come and gone since then too you got to figure that in i'm sh- i bet you they came up with a formula I- i'm not i'm sure i'm missing a lot of variables there but i wouldn't be surprised if there's a mathematical formula that confirms that the next one about uh current detection methods for finding deceptive passengers 3% of the time the new method is affected 66% of the time. That's a huge leap going from 3% to 66%. That's enormous, which is probably why that one seems like the fiction, but I think the beetle one's going to wind up being the fiction. Uh, I don't think that it moves so fast it can't see its prey. I mean, is it, if it can't see its prey, how is it ever its prey? It just sends, just fuels out and 20 times the length of its body? That's impressive. What else, what other creatures grow things that are 20 times the length of its body? I can't think of a single thing. Uh, I think there's too much wrong with the tiger beetle thing. I'll say that one's fiction.
4: And Jay. Okay. So the first one about the stars, uh, about half of them being out of the galaxies. Yeah. I totally believe that. Why not? You know, there's gas out there. That coalesces and, and forms stars. So I don't see what the problem is
3: with that one. Really? You don't have a problem with that? Nope. Well clear uh, I didn't have too much either. Never the Second
4: one, uh I have the similar questions that Bob does about the airport detection thing. Detecting deceptive passengers, I mean, that seems like a really really difficult thing to do. And to click over to the tiger beetle, yeah, I mean I know that they can move fast. They're very skiddy. You know they. Have you ever seen them run? They run in spurts, kind of. But Skitty. I don't know. about yeah.
3: Yeah. They, Skitty cleared it all up.
4: Okay. <laughs> Sometimes when I talk, I don't know if I just made a word up or not. You know. <laughs>
3: you did. Um, yeah. You, it happens. You did. I don't know about
4: them like running so fast that they can't see their own prey yet. This is a really good one this week, Steve. Eh, you know what? I think I'm going to go with the airport detection one as the fake.
2: Okay, all right, cool. we got an even split between two and three, so I guess I'll start with number one. Since you all agree that astronomers have found evidence that half of all stars in the universe exist outside of galaxies, you all think that one is science, and that one is science. Damn, man. <laughs> okay. Oh, explain that yourself.
0: Very,
2: that was very surprising. Yeah. J because stars are made in galaxies you need the gravity and the clouds and everything in galaxies Oh I didn't to think about that stars. so they got
4: flung out of the galaxy after they were they, made
2: Oh yeah they got flung out of the galaxy Injected. Yes and Evan this is not based upon computer simulations this is based on direct observation yes hmm. So astronomers looking at intergalactic space see a little glow there is a glow in the background in between the galaxies that they believe is stars. It's just this background oh, the, haze of stars between the, ghost the galaxies. The ghost light. Yeah. And, it, they, and they calculate how many stars it would take to create that that glow. And it's, it's as many as all the stars in the galaxies themselves. So half of all stars are flung out existing in between the galaxies. Very interesting. That is an
3: incredible discovery. It really yeah. is.
2: It is. I was I that this one might have got me. I was surprised yeah by that when I read it. You know, they they say that well imagine which is always fun to do, imagine you live on a planet circling one of these stars. There could be like no other stars around you. You're out in the middle of, of nowhere. Your night the night sky would be filled with galaxies, not stars. Uh depending on how close you were to other galaxies.
3: But I wonder, Steve, if you could track that, the evolution of that percentage over time and how that would track,
2: right? Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. Let's go on to number two. A new study finds that methods currently used at airports to detect deceptive passengers works only 3% of the time, but a new method being tested was effective 66% of the time. Jay and Rebecca think this one is the fiction. Evan and Bob quite gullibly believe this one is true, (laughs) and this one is say it science. It is science. Yeah. Wow. Is this interesting? Okay, I had no problem believing the three percent. The sixty-six percent. I was that was impressive. It was. So the old method, the current method, I should say, of detecting deceptive passengers is to read body language. Is to see who is avoiding eye contact, who's being skitty, as Jay would say.
4: <laughs> oh, I didn't. That's a new skitty word. Is the, is the beetle running? Not the not the creepy yeah, people at I the know. airport.
2: I know, like <laughs> I fid- know. fidgeting. You know, so suspicious body language. That's essentially worthless. What they actually did was, over a period of months at several different airports, they had mock passengers go through the lines. And see how often they would be detected. So they, they knew what the, the number was, right? They knew, obviously, if you're doing a real world study, you have, you don't really have a way of knowing how many people are getting through who are trying to be deceptive, who are smuggling or whatever. So they had to, they had to have a specific number of passengers that were coached to be deceptive, you know, that, that they, they knew that they were keeping something from the airport security. Um, and then see how many of them got picked up. Only 3% of them, only 3% of the mock passengers were picked up using the, the traditional methods. The new method, which apparently in this study picked up 66% of the mock passengers, was to engage passengers in conversation and then to look for deceptive behavior in the style of talking, specifically increasingly shorter responses, responses, Evasive or erratic responses were very predictive. So they basically would—you—the know, goal is to chit chat with the passenger and ask them the—the the questions aren't important. How long did it take you to get to the airport today? Who are you going to see? You know, where—where are, where are you visiting?
1: But that's not new, though. They've—they instituted that like a year or two ago.
2: That's not what the article I'm reading says. So it, it's not maybe maybe some some airports have instituted something like this, but there's uh they're calling this a new method called controlled cognitive engagement. Yeah, I and remember reading
1: about it like a like a year or two ago when they were testing it out in various airports. Yeah, I mean, well now the test is done. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so now, <laughs> now they're, they're gonna start that. talking to it. us. 66. Yeah, yeah it's, right. It's already it's happened to me at a few airports, and it's the yeah. most eye rolling thing I've been through. Like. Fuck yeah, you. I don't want to tell you where I'm going.
2: <laughs> None of your business. <laughs> but apparently it works. Yeah, you're very you're very suspicious, Rebecca. Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, it seems like that would be fraught with error too. And they're only they're only, of course, showing the true positive rate. I wonder what the the false positive rate was. Yeah. Like, how many people do they think are suspicious when, in fact, they're just not having a good day? All right. There's. I mean, obviously, there's no foolproof method. But this, I mean. I think the the really interesting thing here is that looking at how fidgety people are is worthless. You know, that the, the just looking for suspicious behavior is doesn't tell you anything. All right, let's go on to the tiger beetle. This one's interesting. The tiger beetle moves so fast it cannot see its prey, so instead biologists recently found it relies on thin hair-like projections that are 20 times the length of its body. That one is the fiction. It's partly true, though. It's based on a, a true story. So the tiger beetle, did you know that the tiger beetle, relative to its size, is the fastest creature on Earth?
0: I didn't know that. They're
2: half-inch long beetles that can move 120 body lengths per second, which is five miles per hour. It's kind of scary. So that is
3: so skiddy. I can't believe it. At human <laughs> scales, that
2: would be a human being running 480 miles an hour. Wow. That would be fast. 120 body lengths per second. is super fast so at peak speeds it's moving so fast that its visual system cannot process visual information so it really it moves so fast it can't really see it can't process its visual information so biologists were curious well how is it when it does these spurts these these sprints to get its prey how the hell is it seeing its prey how is it getting the prey it has these big mandibles and it has to know when to open them. It can't open them too soon because then it will get snagged. You know, it'll, it, it'll be at high risk for getting stuck on something. And it has to close it right when it gets to the prey.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So they set up a dummy situation to, and and filmed the tiger beetles with high-speed cameras. What they found was that, um, you know, the, the beetles were able to open up their mandibles pretty much right before getting to the prey and then closing them. Uh, right on the prey and i guess by analyzing the images that the beetle would be seeing what they suspect is that when you know if you're if you're running up on something very quickly right towards the end it's going to get very big very fast right it's going to be small 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 and then big so as soon as the image gets big that's how that's when they know they're getting close and that's when they open and close their mandibles
3: sounds pretty obvious to be
2: yeah, it sounds pretty obvious. That's why I didn't, I wouldn't use this one as the science. Cause I'm like, oh, it's, I'm not sure what the science would be. Hmm. The beetles actually are seeing their prey. Okay. Uh, but just, they're using just the blurry image, just the, the relative size of the blurry image in their visual field to know, to, to estimate how close they are to their prey. That's what the biologist concluded. I made up the whole bit about the long hairs, which, you know, I had to make it seem interesting, but. Just a little bit beyond plausibility. It's not that implausible because that they could have the hairs all curled up, you know, and then extend them to to sort of feel where the prey is in front of them.
3: Yeah, but you're so you're moving like you're like a uh, like flash, and you're gonna yeah. ex- you're going you're gonna extend this little hair like thing ahead of your motion. Right, that's you why know? it was Trai- fiction. Yeah, trailing, I can say, <laughs> but
2: well, whatever. I got I got Rebecca and
4: Jay. Yeah, <laughs> good
2: job, fifty <laughs> percent, not bad. Okay. Jay, do you have a quote for us?
4: I have a quote sent in from a listener named Matt Kay, and this is a quote, uh, by a French economist named Thomas Piketty. It's from, I guess, a, a book that he wrote called Capital in the 21st Century. Are you ready, Steve? Yes. Without precisely defined sources, methods, and concepts, it is possible to see absolutely everything
0: and its opposite. Cool. Thomas Piketty! Is it spaghetti?
4: Pickety or Piketty? Spell it. Persnickety. P I
2: K E T T Y. Thank you for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you. Sure, Steve. Got one more show to do next week, and then we're on our way down under. Look forward to seeing you all in person.
3: Yes, I forget what you all look like.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) But until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info@theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.